the last few weeks, like I said, we've been talking about how Jesus has invited us to make a shift in our life to to escape the ordinary, and uh, and I know as a as a just a reality in our world that oftentimes we as believers we do fall in that sort of routine of of Christianity, and we know we know that that's not all God has in store for us, but oftentimes we find ourselves there, whether we're stuck there or not. Sometimes we just find ourselves there, and and so Jesus is uh, all through the Scripture inviting us to participate with Him in His kingdom and, and, and his kingdom mission. And so he's asked us to come and to be a part of that. And so as we look at the life of the disciples and we study uh, what Jesus is, is teaching and doing in the lives of, of so many he impacted through the scriptures, we begin to recognize that what Jesus has in store for us is far from ordinary. It, it, it's nothing that's normal about it. it, it it's something that, is, that goes beyond even who we are as just individuals. It's much bigger than who we are. And so uh, I don't know about you, but I get very excited just seeing how, how God just moves in so many incredible ways. And so we've been looking at this reality as we've walked through this series. And in doing this, we've also talked a lot about what it means to be Christ-like or Christ-likeness. We've been looking at that over the last couple of weeks. We, we talked about what it means to become Christ-like. And then we Last week, looked at the evidences of Christ-likeness. And so, you know, this is what it, what it would mean for us to be Christ-like, but then this would be the evidence that we're living a life of Christ-likeness. And so today, I want to just sort of uh, continue that by looking at the power of Christ-likeness, the power of Christ-likeness, and, and, and recognizing the power of God in our life in such incredible Ways. And so this morning, the message is titled, The Power of Christ's Likeness. We're going to be looking at John chapter 14, so I want to invite you to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, John chapter 14, and, and we'll be digging into a, a, a small passage here, a few verses from, from this. But as you turn there, let me remind you that last week we were looking at John chapter 13. That was a part of our message as well. And as we were looking at John chapter 13, we begin to see where Jesus is with his disciples, and he had just finished uh, that, that time of, of dining with them. He was breaking bread with them. He was having supper with them. And, and just after supper, he did something that was really remarkable, at least in their minds. Uh, he humbled himself, and he began to wash their feet. And so as he is carrying out this act, the disciples are very much humbled by this as well. They, and, and, and even a few of them just offered back a little bit of pushback, just thinking about this this reality that it shouldn't be Jesus that's washing their feet, but them that should be washing his feet. We also talked about how it was in this moment, this, this upper room discourse, if you will, that, that Jesus also revealed the betrayal of Judas. And so he sort of points that out, and Judas leaves the room, and so he's left with his disciples there. And, and as he's got them in his presence, and he's talking to them, and he, he begins to, to continue teaching them, and Jesus says to them, he says, a new commandment I give you to love one another. And this is what we were looking at last week. And so he challenges them to love one another, to, to understand that by their love for one another, that the world will know that they are disciples of Jesus and how love becomes one of the evidences of our Christ-likeness. When we, when we bear with one another, when we love one another, when we, when we live together in this sense of harmony with one another, 
that this becomes the evidence of our Christ-likeness. We are living the life of Christ when we find it possible to be able to bear with each other and to love one another in one accord. And so we, we saw that. And so this is all happening. This is all happening right there in this, this moment, this, this upper room Discourse where Jesus is, is teaching his disciples. He's molding and shaping them and he is equipping them for their future and he is preparing them for everything that lies ahead. And then just before the passage that we're gonna be looking at this morning, Jesus says this. He says, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says this, and I think this is very interesting. And I wanna use this this morning as just that sort of foundational truth that everything else centers around that we're gonna look at today. But Jesus says these words. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, I want you to just allow that for a moment to just marinate. Believe in God, believe also in me. And so this is where Jesus is at. He, he's teaching these disciples, he's giving giving them some really important stuff here. He's really pouring his heart into them in preparation for that moment in which he will go to the cross and he will die a horrible death. He will be buried in a tomb only to have victory over sin and death by being resurrected from the grave and then ultimately ascending into heaven and leaving them with the mission at hand. And so Jesus says this. He says, believe in God, believe also in in me. Now that becomes hugely important as we look into this passage that we're going to be looking at. Look with me, if you will, at John chapter 14, verses 12, 13, and 14. We're going to look at these three verses here. And Jesus is continuing in this, this discord, uh, this discourse, uh, just teaching his disciples. And he says this He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I heard this story a few years back of this, uh, this guy who all his life he would take a portion of his paycheck and after cashing it he would take the cash a portion of this cash that he had and he would just sort of stuff it away for, a, for another day he just continually saved money a portion of his check every week would go into this sort of a savings account if you will he was doing this at his house but he was, he was sort of hoarding this cash and, and over the years I mean years goes by and he's He's faithful to do that every week, and he's just continuing to, to do that. So finally, he reaches that ripe old age, and, and then suddenly he finds himself on his deathbed, and as his wife is there by his side, he, he asks her to make him a promise. And she said, yes, whatever, you know, just trying to comfort him. She says, whatever you need. And he says, I want you to, when I die, I want you to take that cash that I've been putting away, and I want you to put it in my casket so I can take it with me she promises and so he dies and so she goes and gets the cash she takes it to the bank and she deposits it and then she writes a check for the amount 
and drops that into the casket, therefore fulfilling her promise, right? Promises are something that are really remarkable. We need to understand that when we make a promise, we should always keep it. And as we, as we look into Scripture, we begin to realize that God made a lot of promises to us, didn't he? He was always one who was making promises. And, and, and what we know about God, what we know about Jesus is that, that he was also faithful. He was always faithful to fulfill his promises. He's always faithful. Even in our life today, he, he continues to fulfill the promises that, that he has spoken in Scripture. There are over 31,000 verses in the Bible. Over 31,000 verses. And out of all these verses, they are all a little bit different. There are some that are prophetic, words of God. There are some that are very poetic. There are some of these that, that just seem to tell a story. There, there are some of these that, that, that teach us so much about so many things, but many of them are promises that God has made to his people. There was this man named Everett Storms who was a Canadian school teacher, and one day he set out to count how many promises are made in the Scripture, and he began to read, and, and after many, many years of reading the Bible over 27 different times, word by word through the Scripture, he came up with this, uh, this, this reality that there are 7,148 promises that God made to his people. God is a God of promises. But he's also one that will fulfill those promises. Not, like, not with a catch like the woman putting the check in the casket, but he is always faithful to fulfill these promises and to carry out those things which he says that he will do. And so this morning, we start to think about that, and we start to think about what Jesus is saying here in this text, and, and we begin to realize that in this text, Jesus makes a couple of promises to us, and so I want us to be looking at those here this morning. But before we do that, I, I want us to just remember these words that he says just before he said this passage that we read, believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. You know, a promise is only as good as the ability and the integrity of the person who has made it. And Jesus is our Savior, is making promises that we need to hear this morning because I think they profoundly impact our life as we live out our life as believers, as followers, as disciples of Jesus. And so this morning, I want to point out a couple of truths that Jesus says here, a couple of truths that he reveals to us, but also two promises that he is making. And so the first truth that I want us to look at here this morning is this, is that followers of Jesus will carry on his work. Followers of Jesus will carry on his work. And so Jesus is basically revealing this as a reality for all disciples, okay? And so this is what he says here. He says in this, this passage, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the work 
that I do. Now, I want you to, I want you to see that, and I want you to allow that to set in. He says, truly, truly, it's, it's very important what Jesus is about to say. Anytime Jesus says, truly, truly, you better listen up, because that, this, this is something that's going to be truly uh, true, I guess. And so he is, he is revealing this to his disciples, and he says this. He says, anyone who loves me, anyone who is a disciple of mine, anyone who would consider themselves a follower of Christ, he says, they will carry on the work that I have started. They will carry on the work. The things that I am doing, they will carry on as well. And, and so as we look at this, we begin to realize that this isn't so much like a command that he has given us. It's just a reality of the nature of a disciple. It's the reality of the nature, the identity of the disciple. Jesus isn't commanding us. He's just making a statement and he is saying very clearly that if you are a disciple, if you are a true Christian, if you are a true, authentic believer, follower of Christ, if you are Jesus' disciple, then you will carry on the work that I have started, that I am doing. And so this becomes a huge reality check for, for believers everywhere, for people who proclaim uh, to be Christians who proclaim to be disciples of Jesus. Uh, you know, it, it, what Jesus is saying here is he's basically saying, you cannot be my disciple and not be involved in my work. You can't. Because the nature of who you are, the identity of who you are, when you become a disciple, it makes a shift. It changes. It becomes something else. And in this change, my disciples will carry on the work. Remember, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. The disciples don't know that right now because, I mean, they haven't got that far. We have the Bible telling us the story so we can look ahead. But they are, they are getting ready to see Jesus go to the cross. And after that, he will eventually ascend into heaven. He's going to leave them with the mission to carry on the work of God, to save the lost, to see people come to know the hope that is found in Jesus. And so he's leaving this mission with them. And as he is preparing to do that, he says anyone who would call himself a disciple, anyone who would call himself a Christian will continue to do the work that I have started. And so he lays out this reality, this truth. He speaks into this Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will carry out my mission. If you love me, you will be passionate about the work that I am doing. You know, I think about this and I wonder what the disciples must have thought when, when they heard Jesus answer the scribe. We looked at this last week, but the, Jesus had the this, this expert of the law come up to him and say, Jesus, uh, here, here's a, a bit of a, uh, a puzzle for you. What is the first and greatest commandment uh, that we should always follow? And Jesus answers him with, you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You remember that? We looked at this last week. You shall love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this leader, this expert of the law, he didn't ask for the second greatest commandment, but Jesus goes on to say, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so we looked at that last week, talking about this, this reality, love your neighbor. One of the things that is very important for us to remember, and we looked at what a neighbor might be to us. 
We looked at who our neighbors really are. But the real important thing for us to understand is, is not so much who is our neighbor, but what are we going to do with them? What are we going to do with our neighbor? How are we going to engage with our neighbor? How are we going to do life with our neighbor? And so Jesus, as he's pointing this out to his disciples, he says, if you are a disciple of mine, you will carry out the work that I do. And so Jesus is laying this first reality. You remember the story of Moses? God called him to, uh, to lead his people out of Egypt. We, we look in Exodus chapter 3, and this is what God says to Moses. He says, come, I send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You remember that story in the Old Testament there? And so God goes to to Moses and he says listen I've got I've got something for you to do here's your calling in life here's your purpose if there ever was one Moses this is it I want you to go I want you to go up against Pharaoh I want you to take my people I want you to bring them out of Jesus I mean out of Jesus <laughs> bring them out of Egypt they do sound similar don't they Egypt Jesus so anyway radically different though but he says I want you to bring them out of Egypt and then Moses responds so much like we see so many people today respond when God reveals his purpose for their life, don't we? One of the things Moses does right away is like he, he begins to question his abilities, his adequacies as a, someone who would even be capable of leading. He says, who, me? You remember that? He says, I, I, you know, God, I think you've got the wrong person. I am so insecure I am so inadequate. I think you're talking to the wrong guy. He just begins to die. And then, and then God tells him, he says, no, no, I got the right person. I, I know who I'm talking to. I, I've got the right one. And then he says, but you don't realize I, I'm, not, I'm not good at a lot of things. I mean, obviously the leader that's gonna lead your people out of Egypt, gonna have to, they're gonna have to be capable leaders. And man, I, I don't even use fancy words. I can't even you know, use fancy words. I, half time I, I, I speak in South Georgia country boy, right? No, he didn't say that. That's probably what I said to God when God called me into ministry. But he, he began to just question his gifting, didn't he? He began to think, there's no way that I could be the guy to bring him out. And then he even goes and he says this. He says, what am I gonna say to Pharaoh? In other words, there's this great fear of going up against Pharaoh, right? So he says, what am I gonna say to the guy? I mean, this guy is like, he's like the king, you know? And so he's, he's just really comes up with a million excuses of why he can't be used by God. And the reality is, many of us in this room here today are thinking along those same terms. Every single time God calls us to something in our own life. But God, I, I, I don't know the Bible like some people know the Bible. I, I, don't, I can't speak fancy words. I don't even know that I have a spiritual gift to offer. Yes, you do. If you're a disciple in Christ Jesus, God has gifted you to carry out the mission. He's already said you can't be a disciple. You can't be a disciple if you're not gonna carry on the work of Christ. God is calling every single one of us to carry out the mission that Jesus had embarked on, that he had started, that he had launched. Every single one of us. And so here we see all of this 
we're so quick to talk ourselves out of what we know God's calling us to do, aren't we? Man, we can, t we can become our own worst enemy, can't we? This muscle that's in your skull, this, this thing that's called a brain, man, it gets to spinning. And you can tell yourself all kind of lies, can't you? God, I, I'm, I think you've got the wrong guy. I'm not worthy. There's someone who could do it better. You know what God has this track record of doing? I love this. God doesn't take the most gifted, strongest person to accomplish his will. In fact, when you read scripture, look at people like Gideon. Look at people like David. They were the weakest of the weak. God loves to take the insignificant. He loves to take the ordinary and to do amazing things to him, to, through that person because in doing that, he is the one that's glorified. How many of you have ever found yourself saying, that's not me, that's all God, you know? And we are saying that in true earnest, you know, because we know that we outside of Christ Jesus aren't capable of carrying on and carrying out the things of God without God. And so here we see where Jesus is, is teaching his disciples and he's telling them, he says, followers of Jesus will carry on his work. The next thing he says here is he says this, followers of Jesus, and this is the one that makes it hard for us to get over. He says, we'll do greater things. Followers of Jesus will do greater things. Let's continue reading here in verse 12 where Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. We just covered that. And greater works than these will he do. Jesus says, not only will they carry out the work that, that I've started, but, but they will accomplish even more. Now, I wonder how the disciples must have felt when, when, when Jesus was telling them this. I mean, they had to have been sitting there just like you and I would be sitting there and just like you and I have even said many times as we read even this text. We're reading this and we go, how is that even possible? Because what we do is we begin to think about all the things that Jesus accomplished, all the miracles that he performed. I mean, Jesus was one who was constantly going about healing people as he walked from town to town. He was one who, was, who had this remarkable ability and this capability to increase the food volume, to feed thousands when it really should have only fed a few, right? He was constantly performing miracles, turning water to wine. I mean, there were all these miracles and things that he was doing, and he was constantly doing these things. And as he did these things, that had to be going through their mind. As, as Jesus says, not only will my disciples do what I have been doing, but they will do greater things than I. And so was Jesus saying, you're going to be performing miracles greater than the miracles I've? No, he wasn't saying that. What Jesus was saying was, you will be doing ministry to a greater extent than what I ever did. Let me just give you an example. Most scholars believe that Jesus, throughout his ministry, never traveled more than about 70 miles. Jesus never really left home as we know it. He just went around different places. I mean, we read the scriptures, and if we don't have a good idea of how far these towns were, it sounds like he was traveling the world, doesn't it? 
but in reality, he was, he was going in, in a very small area uh, on the globe. I mean, he was in a, a very small town, I mean, small towns all around Jerusalem there, and, and, and he was doing ministry in a very small place. And so here, Jesus says, you will be doing things that uh, will, will be even greater than the things, and he's talking about the extent of what he was accomplishing. We look at someone like the Apostle Paul, and on the other hand, and he evangelized the entire Mediterranean world. He went on mission trips that led him to vast places, taking the gospel, the good news of Christ Jesus, all over the world. He was the one who was really responsible for carrying the gospel message outside of the ministry influence of Jesus. This is what he's talking about. You will, when you embark on the mission of God, when you embrace the will of God for your life to carry on the mission in which Jesus has started, to that extent, you will do even greater things than I ever accomplished. Very powerful to think about. And the disciples, they're listening to this. They're, they're seeing this, and they're probably wondering, what in the world is he talking about now I want to look at the two promises I don't want us to get away from those because I, I preface this whole thing with these promises that God had, had had given us here in this text he gives to them and he no doubt gives to us look at verse 13 and 14 he says this and here's where they come into play he says whatever you ask in my name this is important underline that in your Bible in my name and then this is what he says he says I will do I will do. Whatever you do in my name, I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Then verse 14, he says, if you ask me anything, here it is again, in my name, I will do it. Now remember, Jesus is talking about the mission of God. Jesus is talking about the expansion of the kingdom of God. He's talking about taking that message of hope in Christ Jesus around the world. He's talking about disciples carrying on what Jesus has already started. He is, he is founding the church. He is launching the church, this mighty movement of God. He is preparing all of this, and he is preparing to send out his disciples into the world. And so he says, whatever you do in my name, this I will do. Whatever you ask in my name, and the Father may be glorified in the Son if you ask me anything in my name. I will do it. So here's these promises Jesus says here in this text. He promises to accomplish that which we ask in his name concerning his mission. Jesus is preparing to leave his disciples and to commission them to carry on what he has started. And as I look at this, what really amazes me, what really just sort of grabs my attention is the reason in which I believe Jesus is saying these words to his disciples. I believe when we look at this text and we see this, I believe that what Jesus wants his disciples to know more than anything else is that his absence doesn't replace his availability. His absence does not replace his availability. He's not living, leaving them to do it on his own. In fact, what Jesus is going to say to them 
And just a few verses later, he's going to say, I know I'm leaving, but I am going to send you a helper. And that helper is the Holy Spirit of God. I'm going to send you. You will not be alone in this endeavor. You will not be accomplishing these things on your own. He says, I will send someone that will walk with you. And so what Jesus is saying, he said, just because I will be at a place in your life where you may recognize my absence, just know that doesn't replace my availability. I'm going to continue to do work in people's life. I'm going to continue to do amazing things. I'm going to continue to do miracles. And you will be the instruments in the Redeemer's hands as you go out into the world and you proclaim the good news of Christ, as you go out and you proclaim the hope and the salvation that's found in the blood of Jesus, I will continue to do great things. In fact, Jesus is saying very clearly here in this passage, he says, he says, whatever you ask in my name, what does he say? He doesn't say, you will accomplish these things. He says, I will do. He's not absent, but he is available. I mean, excuse me, he is absent, but he's, he is also available. Now, if you come to me and you say, hey, Pastor David, uh, will, will you, if you text me and you say, will you do this for me today here in town, and I text you back and I say I'm sorry I am on a mission trip in Lebanon it's going to be impossible for me to do that right but not so with Jesus when we are carrying on the mission plan of God when we are fulfilling the will of God for our life he may be absent as far as us physically being able to see him he is available and present in spirit so he's not leaving them at all. Things just aren't going to be the same as they used to be. And so here we see this unfolding as Jesus is about to go to the cross and it's there that he will die and only to be buried in a tomb and raised from the dead. It's, it's Jesus who would eventually ascend into heaven and, and, and be seated at the right hand of the Father, leaving his disciples to carry on what he had started, although he is sending the Holy Spirit is a helper. But just because he's physically absent doesn't mean he's gone. Both Matthew and Mark recorded this in their Gospels when, he, when, when, when they record that Jesus said these words. He says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus makes it very clear that the promises that he is making here is to carry on the mission of Jesus to carry on the will of God but he will do this through his disciples he will do this through his disciples so the question this morning and this is where we'll sort of kind of wrap things up so the question this morning is is what does it look like to live out a missional to live out missionally through Christ likeness We've talked about what it means to become Christ-like. We've talked about what the evidence of Christ-likeness are. Today, we're talking about living out missionally with our lives, this Christ-likeness. What, what is it that we need to understand? Every single one of us in this room, not just the pastors, not just the life group leaders, not just the, the leaders of this, this church, but how can every one of us know that we are living out a missional life, but one that mirrors Christ-likeness? 
that mirrors the image of Jesus in our life. Alan Hirsch, he once said this. He's a, a great missiologist, but he once said this. He said, everyone wants a missional church, but they don't always want a missional ministry. And what he means by that is he says, there's a lot of people in the church that say, why aren't we doing this out in the streets? Why aren't we doing this? Why don't we put this program together? Why don't we go out and feed the hungry? Why don't we do this? And then you look into their life and they're not doing anything. They want the church to do it, but they don't want to do it. And so he says, there's a lot of people that want a missional church. We're all rooting for that missional church. Pastor David, go get them. But nobody wants to live like Jesus doing it themselves. It's a powerful thing to think about. And he goes on to talk about if a disciple is going to live out his life missionally, in such a way that it looks Christ-like, then he must embrace what he calls the five-fold Jesus model. I want to give you those real quick. These aren't points, so I don't, don't have time to break them down. Don't stress over five more points to go here. But I think these are so powerful because what, what he says is this. He goes on talking about if we're going to carry out the mission of Jesus, we must recognize, first of all, that Jesus was an apostle. Apostle basically means one who is sent. He takes on this form, if you will, of one who is sent. You know, all through the scripture, Jesus says, he says, I was sent by the Father. I was sent by the Father to do the will of the Father. And so we as believers in Christ Jesus, we too must be those who live a life of sent. I think we covered that in the first message, didn't we? Living a life of sent being sent out not necessarily by the church by, by Jesus Jesus if you are a disciple is sending you to carry out the mission that is to carry the gospel message so that through your efforts and through the life change of others he may be glorified the second one is this that Jesus was a prophet he was always preaching the word of God. So we ask ourselves, in what way are we serving Jesus? But we also ask ourselves, in what way are we spending time in God's word that we may be able to share God's word? Every one of us should take on that role of spending time in God's word that we may be capable of sharing God's word because the word of God is truth. He goes on to say that Jesus was an evangelist. He was always sharing the hope that is in Christ Jesus. Now, it's kind of funny because Jesus was Christ Jesus, right? But when you look into Jesus' life, he was always sharing this hope. You remember the story of the woman at the well? You remember Jesus, he comes up and he asks the woman for a drink of water and she says, who are you, a Jew? I mean, there, there was a bit of criticism for just who he is, right? I mean, who are you, this person who shouldn't even be talking to me? Who are you that you would ask me for a drink of water? And then Jesus goes on to explain the hope that can be found in Christ, that he is the living water. And we see this progression where she calls him a Jew, and then she says, she, she earn, you know, he earns a little respect from her, and so she says, well, sir. And so she's moved away from this, this derogatory term to a term of more respect. She calls him a sir. And then she says, you know, as he continues to talk, well, it's obvious that you must be some sort of rabbi. So now he's, he's moved 
from just Mr. Jesus to teacher Jesus, right? So it's obvious that you must be, you know, some sort of teacher. And then she goes on to say, man, you must be a prophet. I mean, the things that you're telling me, nobody's ever told me those things. And so the things that you're telling me, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just coming to this conclusion that you're not just a Jew, you're not just a man, you're not just a teacher, you must be a prophet. And he continues to preach that gospel, that good news, the reality that he's the living water. And what does the woman at the well finally say? She says, I have met my Lord and Savior. I've met the Savior of my life. And what does she do? She runs immediately. Why is this? Because a disciple will carry out the work of the of the Father. A disciple would carry on the mission of Jesus. She immediately runs into this town, the town that knew of her reputation, and she begins to say, come and see this man whom I met who is the Savior of my life and of yours. And the town begins to come out, and they become to, to know Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. And so Jesus, he was an apostle, he was a prophet, he was an evangelist, he was a shepherd. He was a pastor. He was one who shepherded his, his flock. You know, I, I look at that and I think about this reality. Everybody wants to be poured into, but nobody really wants to take time to pour into anyone else. But that's not an attribute. That's not a quality. That's not a characteristic of Jesus, is it? Every one of us should be poured into, but every one of us should be pouring into and you say, well, Pastor David, I've only been a Christian for three years. Well, then I would say, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Do you realize that the Apostle Paul, when he was saved on that road to Damascus, do you, do you remember the story? I mean, the scales were removed from his eyes. He saw who Jesus was. And if you go back and you read that text in Acts, it says immediately he began to tell others about Jesus. What are you waiting for? I don't care if you got saved this morning. What are you waiting for? Go out and tell people the good news of Christ Jesus. If you believe it, then go out so that someone else may believe it. The truth of Jesus. The final thing, not only was he a pastor, he was a teacher. He was always equipping his disciples. If we're going to live a life of Christ-likeness, if we're going to model our, our lives after Jesus, and according to Jesus, we can't, we can't even be a disciple if we're not. We're maybe living under some sort of false hope. But as a disciple of Christ Jesus, what do we need to recognize about our role in this thing we call Christianity? My friends, it's not just a religion. It's not just a religion. It's just, it's not just normal go to church and check off the box so that we can say we've been a good boy or a good girl. It's, it's an authentic relationship with a Savior who has done incredible things in our life and because we recognize that life change in our own hearts, we are bursting to tell everyone else. How are we as Jesus' disciples 
living out our life missionally in a way that resembles Christ-likeness. I'm not sure if you realize this or not, but God designed the church to be a movement. A movement. God designed the church to be a movement, and when it's a movement, it's because His people are living like Jesus, not the world. 